Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that hopes for the very best but prepares you for the absolute worst. I'm Alex Andreu, abandoned by all the North London elite panellists to toil through the dregs of the summer. But just despite them, I have conjured up an all-star lineup. Let's meet them. Hannah Fern is a writer and columnist for The Independent, The Guardian and many more. Hello. Welcome back, Hannah. Thank you. Nice to be here. By this time next week, Liz Truss's cabinet, we think, will be taking its horrendous alien shape. Kwasi Kwarteng is being touted as her chancellor and Jacob Rees-Mogg's excitingly could be on his way out of his current brief as Brexit Opportunities Minister, having presumably identified all two of those, and into a promotion. Where's he off to? Well, when this was first discussed, the job that was going around that he was uh, heading for was housing minister. And I tweeted that I thought I couldn't think of a single person less suited to that role (laughs) at a time of acute housing crisis. Um, But it's almost like somebody saw that tweet and thought that they'd like to prove me wrong and have a bit of a laugh because now (laughs) he's reportedly being lined up for the single job that he's even less fit, which is energy minister. I don't know about you, but I find that absolutely chilling. This Candles is the, for everyone. Absolutely. This is the man who described the spread of food banks in the country as uplifting. He criticised UNICEF for feeding hungry children. And we're obviously in a position where energy is the single biggest problem that faces the country for the next year. Um, I don't want him in charge of that. I'm worried about what that would mean. I really hope this speculation is wrong. Also, um, he needs no food or uh, heat because he is undead. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the last time I was on here, I said that Sunak would definitely win. So maybe maybe this is all wrong. And well, I was in agreement with you. And then he did the first <laughs> bloody debate, didn't he? And all he needed to do is let her talk. And what didn't he do? Let her talk. Poached from our sister podcast, a star striker surprise summer signing. Marie Leconte <laughs> is a journalist and author. Her latest book, Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet, is out today. Ooh. Hello, Marie. Hello. I grew up on tin cans connected with string. You grew up on the internet. But even in your lifetime, it's evolved, it's fair to say, from a treehouse of niche communities to something almost everyone in the developed world can access 24-7. Were there advantages to the early days of chat rooms and flash sites? Oh, absolutely. I think the, and again, I sort of think of them as the earlier years of the internet, because I think otherwise people will get annoyed if I say early. Uh, but, but certainly, you know, the internet that I had when I grew up was a lot smaller and it felt very fragmented in a way that it was actually quite healthy. So I was part, for example, of a blogosphere that was about, you know, so like 10, 15 of us who all had blogs and we read each other's blogs, etc. <laughs> and then, you know, you had a few people on MSN, on MySpace, whatever. Um, and so, A, I think they were just on a really sort of like base level, fewer people there. B, I think you could kind of fragment your own identity as well. So decide to be slightly different people on different websites, different forums, etc., which I think is actually quite freeing and quite liberating. And also there was still you know, that there was not that expectation that you should just be the same person, both everywhere across the internet, but also in person in real life, uh, which again made it really fun. And, you know, and and obviously that's not what the internet is anymore. So I suppose it felt a lot more liberating as a medium as opposed to now where it just feels quite suffocating. Mm. Um, Let me ask you a rather different question, because I know how much you like being France's representative (laughs) to the UK on all things. Um, 
The list of documents that the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago has been released, and apparently there are rumours that one may concern illicit details about Emmanuel Macron's love life. Do French voters give a damn about sex scandals? Um, So I'm going to answer this in two bits, because I do think they care. They're only human. Everyone loves a bit of a gossip, I think, especially about people in power. Um, but that being said, I'm not sure they care enough to kind of for that to influence, I suppose, uh, how they vote. Because I remember actually, and that was really interesting when Closer magazine revealed that Francois Hollande was having an affair uh, while president. There was a massive backlash afterwards uh, against Closer magazine because busy French people said, <laughs> "No, but hang on, you know, everyone has the right to a private life." And actually, you know, obviously, don't get us wrong; we will read every word of this, but also you should not have published it. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think it's and also probably a small uptick for Francois Hollande as everyone I, went, "Huh." <laughs> I do genuinely think his personal ratings went slightly up afterwards. I hope I'm not making this up. I seem to remember that. Our guest this week is a barrister specialising in public and constitutional law. He was part of the team of lawyers who took on the government after it, and as they argued, and won unlawfully prorogued Parliament. His book, Overruled, Our Vanishing Democracy in Eight Cases, is out now. Sam Fowles, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Sam, the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, a man with a mixed but unarguably influential legacy, has thrown into sharp relief the direction in which Russia seemed to be travelling and where it has ended up with Ukraine. Is one of the lessons that emerges from your book that it is a mistake to see progress as monodirectional? Yeah, absolutely. That theory, the the end of history from uh, Francis Fukuyama, he he's actually even he has now admitted that he he got that wrong in the in the early nineties, mm. and that you know maybe at in in the nineties we were we all sort of were happily skipping down the road to democratization and and human rights and the victory of Western liberalism, and since then clearly we got that wrong. Clearly, we, we have not continued to skip happily down that road. Well, some countries are, I guess, but a lot of countries are not. We'll hear much more from you in the, in the show proper. This week on the show, barring any act of an extremely vengeful God, this is the last week of Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister. We'll discuss a few highlights and the many, many low, 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 low lights. Plus, we speak to Sam about his book and chat more generally about the current unwinding of democratic norms. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the rise of the don't knows. A growing number of voters are unsure about a growing number of issues. Is it okay not to have views? First this week, the pile of service wash that had been littering the steps of number 10 for three years is finally being collected. After 1,140 days of chaos, parties, corruption, illegality, inappropriate references to Peppa Pig, Kermit, Pericles and masturbation, Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson will be out of Downing Street by the time we record our next podcast. Back in February 2020, he told voters that the country was ready to take off its Clark Kent spectacles, leap into the phone booth and emerge with its cloak flowing as a supercharged champion. Three years later, the UK has indeed transformed into an alcoholic, broken, paranoid, destitute Clark Kent, who in fact lives in that phone booth. Hannah... In his first speech as PM, Johnson told us the doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. How did that pan out? 
Well, it turns out that just like about Brexit, um, the gloomsters were right all along. I'm proud <laughs> to be a gloomster. Um, I think it's it's not a novel point uh, in any way, but Michael goes... Listen, schadenfreude is all we have at this point. <laughs> we're going to enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, people have said this before and it's well known, but Michael Gove ran against Johnson because he was unsuited to power. That was the whole point. He, he felt he needed to, to, to do something about that. And the Downing Street speech to which you referred when he stood there on his first moments was all about his perception of himself, not actually about what where we were headed. Mm. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting to, to kind of see where he ended up. I mean, look, looking at the, um, you know, what... What did he mean in the end? Um, the, you know, what did he mean in the end? Well, I think you know, the the Pincher case it sort of represented a true excess because of drunkenness was involved, uh, but also the misuse of power in office mm. and, and abuse. So it almost was like the final straw that was so emblematic um, of the situation that he found himself over the, the previous year. So I'm yeah, not really surprised because that. I mean there had been. An assumption that he sort of, he will just deflect everything. But in the end, his downfall came, as Hemingway wrote, gradually, then suddenly. Um, the confidence vote, Guyte resigning, the pincher affair. Why do you think these things tip him over the edge when arguably much worse stuff actually had not? Yeah, I, I, I agree. It sometimes seems like the smaller things uh, were the ones that, that took him at the end. But I think the confidence vote was was sort of the moment that the country lost patience because mm. there was this long debate. It was taking up all the airtime. It was dominating the, the news agenda and actually kind of nothing happened. And the opinions polls started slipping. The, the new Blue Wall MPs started to get very worried about their job security. Mm. So it, that's how, why his position finally became untenable, I think. Mm. I mean, I, people mentioned, you mentioned uh, Lord Guite as well. I don't think that made that much difference, like, because I don't, the electorate's much less interested in those kind mm. of technicalities. I think everyone in the Conservative Party who did so, did so because of his popularity and his so-called charisma, not because they always knew he was sort of a tool of power, um, not this kind of great Chilean leader he thought himself to be. So when as a tool of power, he's proved himself useless, then it's, that's, that's the moment he, he had to mm. go. I was looking into this, and I think he's the first prime minister to be forced into resigning because of a mass resignation of ministers. Mm. Everyone else has gone because of a confidence vote or pressure behind closed doors. I think he's the first one to be basically publicly shamed into yeah, resigning. Yeah, um, I mean, but, that, but I, I, now that he's actually sort of gone, I mean, he hasn't officially gone, but the last two months he's been in absentia. It's kind of emblematic of his, his problems that he was desperate to hang on to power. It was all about power and not duty and that. The last and and two about months, himself. Yeah, absolutely. The moment the job became not about ego, but about public service. Yes, not about he, him. He's, he he's pissed gone. off, yeah. On holiday. Sam, the proroguing of Parliament set the tone, really, for a pretty tumultuous premiership. Has anything since then particularly shocked you since... You know, given that he started his tenure with just such an extreme constitutional vandalism. So I was sent this question in advance and I, I was really struggling with it. So I went and rounded up, you know, all the pupils and the juniors in chambers and, and said, right, give me a list <laughs> of like the worst things you think that uh, that Boris Johnson had done. And two hours later, I was like, right, shut up, get out of my room. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was hoping for a really concise answer. And... Uh, what I came up with was uh, the irony of all of this in that Johnson 
built his whole self-image, at, at least, and, and certainly in the eyes of some, of, of I am the next Churchill, right? But actually, look for, you know, Second World War leaders with, uh, with whom he has uh, most in common. I think he's, most, he's more akin to Chamberlain, in that both were defined by, on the great issues of the day, dithering and prevaricating mm. until events essentially overtook them. And we saw that with COVID when he you know, messed about for well, over a month before put it, putting in, uh, in place a lockdown, despite his, uh, his scientific advisors begging him to do that. We saw it with Russia and the Ukraine, where he, I think he spent about a decade arguing vociferously against giving weapons to, to Ukraine. Mm. And we saw it with the cost of living crisis, where this time last year, he was saying there's absolutely nothing to worry about from, uh, from inflation. <laughs> you don't need to worry about that at all. He's still and saying yet, that now. Are. He was still saying that today. <laughs> yes. And in the end, as a matter of fact, only lasted a few months more than Chamberlain did anyway. Um, but maybe he's hoping for a comeback a la Churchill. Marie, he did triumph early on with a huge electoral landslide. And people at that point were talking about a decade of John Johnson and labor in the wilderness for several elections. Were there any hints it might end less than three years later like this in those early days? Um, I think so, yes, because Boris is always Boris. So I think on an internal note, I remember something that caught my eye at the time towards the end of the leadership contest when it was obviously... Obvious that he was going to win. There was no world in which he was not going to win. And I remember talking to a friend who was quite close to Team Boris and saying, yeah, they're really, really struggling to find a chief of staff. No one wants to serve <laughs> Boris Johnson. No one wants to be his chief of staff. And actually, they ended up uh, with Dominic Cummings because they'd kind of asked everyone else. Like, that was very much not the original choice, which at the time I remember thinking, OK, that's actually quite interesting of like this man has nearly every single Conservative MP behind him. He's definitely going to win. They could not find a single good person willing to work there. So I think that, that that was an early sign for me that things were probably not going to go well for a very long time. Uh, but but then, you know, the, the more philosophical, I suppose, answer is I think that what Boris was very good at for a very long time, it was trading off future power. Um, in that, you know, future power, I think, in politics is power in itself, because mm. if you're someone who's in the, on the ascendance, then you can quite easily get people around you, get people to back you, get people to kind of, you know, forgive you for messing up occasionally, etc. Because there's always that sense that there's, you know, ironically, sunlit uplands on the horizon. And there was, I think, always going to that point of going, OK, well, actually, he's got the power now that there is no longer any sort of like future promise of, you know, power just on the horizon. So what you know, surely that is also by definition the end of the road and he's going to collapse quite soon, mm. uh, which I put um, in, haven't you heard, I think, as he became prime minister. And I still feel quite smug because I, I maintain that actually um, that you. played out kind of that way of, again, there was no road left and he could no longer trade off any f potential future yeah. great things he could do. You mentioned everyone's favourite substack genius Megamind himself, he does deserve a mention. <laughs> Assessed in the round, how influential do you think Cummings was as a Johnson ally and how damaging as a Johnson foe? So I think what I find really interesting about Dominic Cummings, and that's something on which I'm very happy to say, you know, I called it wrong. So 
the first few months of the Boris premiership were kind of defined by all the fights. I think number 10 decided to pick for no obvious reason uh, with absolutely anyone and everyone. <laughs> but quite a lot of them as well being fights that they were obviously going to lose. And I remember at the mm. time, the consensus was, and again, to be clear, I agreed with it, was that actually this is a Cummings problem. You no, know, this is a man who's never known anything but, you know, big fighty campaigns. And actually he's not good as a, you know, very senior person in a government. Um, but then he left. And then number 10, guess what? Just kept on picking fights with everyone all the time, even though it was going to, you know, exactly. So I think my, my weird, and I, I would love someone to write something on that, actually, on like, what actually did he do? So it's not, you know, or is it a case that he shaped that number 10 in his image so early on that no one could quite change course afterwards? I'm, I'm still not quite sure. I, I still feel like there's a bit of a mystery box there well, in terms of how were, much he shaped the premiership. Maybe they were just an exceptionally good fit to start with. <laughs> Their philosophies <laughs> matched. They were made of the same paste, the, as it were. On the subject of of fights, yeah. a, I used to play used to play rugby with a someone who was in in that uh, that that inner circle of staff. Uh-huh. Tag rugby, I should I should add, because okay. you know we're all sort of old and weak now and can't can't handle the real thing. Um, but a few weeks after the the prorogation case, I, I played against him, and I was I have never seen someone play tag rugby so angrily and it almost <laughs> devolved into an actual fight and this is like Clapham Common on a Saturday right? no one cares about this and yet this this guy was so amped up and so mad at me um, that yeah we nearly nearly had a fight over, over the tag pitch that's brilliant um, what will Dom do now without the trolley to rail against I wonder Sam do you think that trip to Durham was the real start of Partygate. What I mean is Johnson's protection of Cummings, then the Patterson scandal, and I'm leaving out a lot of episodes, I'm aware, Partygate, the Chris Pincher affair, all of them fell fell under the general banner, the rules don't apply to Mm. us. And I think that's ultimately what voters became angry about. So do you think that trip to Durham was really the beginning of the dissent? I think there's certainly an argument for it. There's, you could flip it the other way. And, the, and at the time, I thought the reaction to this trip to Durham is a, quite a, a statement because it's say, it is saying very publicly, the rules don't apply to us. And so you can't hold us accountable in the same mm. way you have with other politicians. And, you know, welcome to the new game. But I think perhaps that didn't, didn't come off for them. Thing with, with British politics, isn't it, that you can be absolutely rubbish at your job. And we're quite happy for you to just carry on with it. Um, But as soon as you start to try and get something over on the rest of us, we start to get really annoyed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the fact that that Johnson absolutely screwed up the, the response to COVID was sort of fine. But the fact that, you know, we were all isolated and staying away from our friends and uh, etc. And he was partying. That was what we had a problem with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hannah Truss has marketed herself to Tory members as the Johnson continuity candidate. Would that be be a difficulty when in a few days she must pretend to the country that she represents change? I think actually it's less of a problem than we here sitting here might feel it is for her because we've been watching the last six weeks very intensely. Um, we know exactly who she is and her, her, her background because this is what we do. We kind of look at this stuff with a, a strange forensic mm. interest. Actually, I don't think most people know who she is. And I think the fact that she 
dodged the BBC interview that she was supposed to be appearing on um, this week is possibly because she wants to stand for something different once she actually gets the job. So she doesn't want to have to say something before all the members have voted. <laughs> and then and She then wants we'll to put it. some clear water between that yeah, Liz Truss so. and the next Liz Truss. Because the interesting thing about um, you know people inside Westminster, as I was just saying, they always underestimate the kind of general ignorance of political figures. And I don't mean that as a general ignorance of politics. People are very engaged with the issues, but they don't always know the individuals mm, mm. involved. And so an interesting thing, I was watching Pointless the other day and um, it not recorded not that long ago, probably maybe six months ago, when um, Rishi Sunak was still Chancellor. Chancellor yeah. And the, one of the questions was like, name a member of the cabinet. And the only ones that had scores above sort of 20 were Johnson and Sunak and Su- and one of the guesses from the, one of the contestants was that his name was Ricky Sunak so mm-hmm. I think and he's and this is after the pandemic after furlough after he was like the face of getting us through financially um, so I think actually her biggest problem coming up isn't that this kind of adjustment between candidate and, and leader mm-hmm. but actually about the fact that she's a terrible speech maker and probably not very well fitted to the job, actually. Mm. And that's going to become apparent very quickly, I suspect. Yeah. I loved Gordon Brown kept calling him Richie Sunak. (laughs) Richie, Richie, I mean... Richie, Richie Sunak. I thought that was quite deliberate, actually. (laughs) Very naughty. Um, Mm. Johnson has claimed the vaccine success is basically down to him. Is that true? Sorry, does does he work at Oxford? I, I, I didn't notice him doing much, uh, no, much I, developing ooh, that. I am, oh, I am weirdly, I think, prepared to make a slight case for the defence. Is that okay. in that? But I, I think it is. It is actually true that the NHS got into gear much faster than you know similar sort of outfits in other countries. Where I remember, you know, having been like comparing talking to my family in France, like you know, we we did get vaccinated a lot quicker. So actually, you know, obviously the EU did catch up eventually, but we did have that beginning. But then, you know we messed up so badly on everything else that actually, if I remember correctly, our lockdown lasted for longer in the end. And it was Mm. like, okay, well, what was that for then? Mm. Yes, I think by the end of the summer, we were behind most EU countries. It's just, it's my impression that all of these things were a series of bets. And his bets just happened to pay off um, on this occasion. But there's an alternative universe in which his bet... Um, you know, circumventing regulation in a way doesn't pay off. (laughs) There's masses of problems with it. But anyway, let's give him that. One other thing people might give him credit for is his stance on supporting Ukraine. We talked briefly about it. Do you think he's in danger of turning even that into a negative domestically with just his constant visits (laughs) to Zelensky? It's becoming a little bit of a joke, isn't it? it? I feel like it has. What was it? And and I think that's the point where I thought, God, you know, politics really has become really insane when, what was it, the last time, I think, you know, the time before last, who knows? Anyway, a point at which uh, Boris Johnson unexpectedly had a call, I think, actually with Zelensky. Um, but on the same day that something else had been revealed or happened or whatever, and I genuinely saw that and burst out laughing, which is oh, like, such a weird reaction. My reaction to the Prime Minister having a call with the leader of a nation at war was to piss myself laughing, because yeah. of course, obviously. So no, so I think on, on, in that sense, I think it has definitely become a bit of a joke. But also, so what worries me a bit is that, and I know that they've tried to an extent, but 
you know, compared to, for example, like some of the speeches Macron has given, and I'm uh, friends of the podcast will know I'm not even Macron's biggest fan. But but there's been quite a lot of good rhetoric in terms of saying, actually, you know, lots of what's going on is also about, you know, solidarity as a continent against Russia, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And I'm not convinced, actually, British politicians, the government has really done that to the same extent or in a way that it has been, I guess, powerful enough. So I worry that over the winter, especially if the government doesn't help people enough, there will be a bit of a backlash, either from people or even from newspapers, eventually saying, oh, but, you know, actually, how much do we care about Ukraine? Yeah. Yeah. Been a while I, think I can see that being prepared. Um, I think yeah. there are two issues that will come out. I think you're absolutely right. One of them is around the end of the kind of support system for housing for refugees. So we're going to end up with a load of people with yeah, no which- secure to stay two or three months really time. not very long yeah and I've heard some early reports of various in various um, councils particularly on the south coast it's starting to come apart already so that's really interesting to see how that plays out and I, I think that could lead to a bit of a, a, a kind of backlash but also it, they haven't made the case as you say about this is Europe versus Putin actually particularly around energy that case needs to be made to to get us to kind of come on board with the fact that we're paying higher energy prices as well. So that it's a bigger issue than just support for Ukraine in a moral sense. That it's, case it's, is being made. I can I can promise you very strongly in France, very strongly yes, in Germany, here, exactly. very strongly in Greece Germany are doing and a the great Netherlands. Job. Yeah. They, they're the four countries I have. And Germany's preparing its citizens for what they need to do as part of a kind of common goal to of cut yeah to cut demand and oh. to fill part of a kind of it's an ethical stance. To, to reduce reliance on, on Russian I just uh, did gas. A, I just did an interview with Annette Dittert, and she was telling me that um, public buildings are not lit at night anymore, you know, monuments mm. and things like that, that the temperature of uh, swimming pools is a couple of degrees down, the temperature of public buildings, the air conditioning is, is a couple of degrees up, there are limits to when central heating will be deployed in the winter. Like, they, they take, they're doing all this stuff mm. in preparation, and we've done nothing, None None nothing, N- not even a public information campaign saying, these are the ways you can reduce your consumption. It's a, I mean, it's extraordinary. I think there is a, is a danger when we're, when we're talking about this as well to, to, you know, dive into the government's narrative, which is that all of the shortages we're facing and all of the, the, the energy prices are, are down to what's happening in, in Ukraine. And actually, the UK has, a, com- compared with places like France or Germany, has a, a relatively low reliance on, on Russian gas be- before. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, our inflation is standing at something like three or four times the, mm. uh, the, uh, what, what it stands on the continent. And in terms of energy, I think the hi- Italy has the highest energy inflation, which is in, in the 70s, where ours is above 200%. Yeah. Um, and so to, to suggest that oh, we, th- we've all got to sort of knuckle down for Ukraine is, is just not what's happening. Actually, yeah. well, actually we're, we're knuckling down for the fact that we didn't sort out a proper Brexit deal when we had the chance. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't sort out our, our renewable system when a we had the chance. A completely privatised industry, underinvestment in storage capacities, which they're now desperately trying to reopen yeah. and all of that. Not to mention, I heard somewhere that North Sea oil apparently goes into the sort of price-fixing pot with everything else and comes out at the at the same price instead of like America mm. is doing, saying our oil will price it, mm. thank you, um, which just seems 
mad. But but at least you got Brexit done, right, Sam? Um, well, no. It even, it, this is the thing. <laughs> it was a rhetorical question, Sam. Learn not to Sorry. take every bait. <laughs> right. Okay. Quick fire round. Is there something we haven't discussed that you think he deserves credit for? Anyone want to jump in? I think that support for climate change policies has not rolled back at the pace I assumed it would. Oh, so, <laughs> so there's an area where he wasn't as shit as yes. you might fear. Ooh, that's, I can see that. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm not sure why I didn't think of that earlier. I will say that actually the furlough and self-employed schemes were very good and actually very straightforward to access. At least, I mean, I can only compare it to France. Yeah. But the, seeing the self-employed scheme war did exclude large group of people, groups of people because of the way tax codes work. But yes, I will agree that that was a... That was a response worthy of the challenge. Sam? He's been absolutely brilliant if what you love is statues of old white guys who killed loads of people (laughs) in the uh, 19th century. If that's that's your bag, he's your guy. It's a niche audience, but we'll take it. Now, let's answer a digital dispatch from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. This week, very on theme, Paul Barnes asks, On leaving office, does Johnson escape the consequences of any investigations into his conduct begun during his premiership? If not, does the Attorney General have any swerves at their disposal to get him off the hook? Pardon my cynicism. That's Paul's, not mine. Hannah How do we think the Parliamentary Standards and Privileges Committee investigation might go? The attempts to dismantle it seem to me to have fizzled out slightly from their peak. So I think the inquiry is really important for for sort of politics and for British democracy, but it probably won't make any difference to Johnson's kind of legacy in terms of his, his public perception. I think it will... I think voters tend to think one of three things about him, all politicians, in <laughs> fact, which is that um, they're all on the make, just like him, some sort of general cynicism, uh-huh. or none of this really mattered as he was a great bloke and got Brexit done, so that's the kind of fanboy yeah, attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Or thirdly, that he was simply unsuited to power, and there's obviously a, a big camp on both the right and left who, who feel that about him. And so th- this inquiry... That the committee inquiry won't make any difference to those views, whatever it, they, mm. whatever it finds. But it might force him to fight a by-election. It, yes, absolutely. Those, those views are entrenched. Um, I think it matters as it flags up uh, the way abuses of power occur. And mm. so, it, yes, as you say, it might force him to kind of defend himself yet again, so trash his le- legacy. It also might force a kind of a bit of serious thought inside Westminster about the, the kind of protocols that, that are in place that allow these kind of abuses to, mm. to happen. And, and it may mean that any future prime minister, whether we're talking about trust now or post-general election, mm. will do something firm to make sure things, you know, that, that, that power is, is so spread out a little bit more. I think all of that's very unlikely. Yeah. I think that the committee is in, uh, and the inquiry is, is an important process, but I'm not sure that it will have any real impact. Um, Sam, what about the Lebedev party stuff? Is that making your spidey sense tingle at all? I think that really depends on on Johnson, actually, Mm. Um, because... Johnson has an opportunity to to duck all this. Yeah. He could he could happily wander off into the sunset and you know start his million pound speeches tomorrow. Yeah, but I think if he if he does stick around, I think that will stick around 
uh, and, and sort of follow him. Uh, not least because he's still going to need backers. Lebedev mm. is, is his biggest is one of his biggest supporters, mm. and I think if he's if he's planning a comeback, as many people are are suggesting then he's going to need help from uh, from someone influential like mm, Lebedev. That's interesting. And, uh, and so that, that stain won't go away because it's it's a sort of continuing wound, essentially. Yeah. And he, and largely another pretty much self-inflicted one since he denied it and then seemed to volunteer the yeah. information <laughs> at a committee hearing, going, oh, yeah, I went there, as the, as the civil servant behind him was <laughs> writing stuff on a piece of paper and underlining it and passing it to him. We shall never know what that was. Um, Marie, does a COVID inquiry, do you think, hold potentially more peril for him? Might it destroy what little legacy he has or, or will it not kind of name and shame? So I, I find it really hard, actually, to guess how that's going to go, because also, and obviously, that's kind of what we've been talking about. But I do think the country has tried to move on a bit in, in that way, like in a way that's not dissimilar, I think, from Brexit, you know, the point that happened in about, I don't know, was it like 2018, 2019, where the majority of people actually went, we have stopped caring, Jesus Christ, please stop talking about this. <laughs> um, you know, people of all stripes and all sides, etc. And, and I wonder if the pandemic is not actually a similar thing where people... Even now, like Just actually, you know what? But also that that was, you know, on, on a basic psychological thing of saying that was a very traumatic period of our lives. Uh, we're still we're living now in a different traumatic traumatic period of our lives uh, with a you know massive cost of being crisis. <laughs> exactly. So so you know, w- will people want to follow it as closely? I'm not certain. So I, I yeah, I, I don't see that as being an entire game changer for the mm. great Boris legacy. I think um, it depends on the success or otherwise of kind of campaigners with a particular vested interest. So there will be a large group of people who are really focused on that inquiry because they've lost loved ones through, you know, in care homes and so on. And of course, there's always a chance of other miscellaneous misconduct that you can kind of suppress when when you've got the might of number 10 behind you. But as we're finding out with Trump, once you leave office... Maybe there's loads of other stuff that we don't know about that will start sort of leaking out. You've heard him throughout today's show. Our guest this week is Sam Fowles, author of Overruled, Confronting Our Democracy in Eight Cases. It takes us from the highest seats of judicial power in the land to tales of being threatened with stabbing in a county court. With a new PM due... What is the future of democracy in Britain? Can the damage to standards and constitutional conventions be repaired? Is there any ray of hope for us under a trust government? Sam, you drop us as readers right in the middle of it during prorogation. You describe how after Lady Hale's judgment, a cabbie told you the British people will never forgive you for what you've done. How did it feel to be a lawyer in the eye of that particular judicial hurricane? When it was happening, it was you don't really have a chance to think about the enormity of you know what's going on outside yeah. that courtroom. My job as a lawyer is to win that case, mm. and not an activist. I'm I'm a lawyer, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it occurred to us that there was an enormous amount of political pressure on the uh, on the judges as well, and Lord Panic made this incredible speech about the technicality of the law and the history. Mm. And in O'Neill QC made what I think was an equally good speech about the judge's role. And I think that that was really effective. 
But it wasn't until we we came out and I we were thinking, oh great, you know, we've done our job, we've we've won this case, and then we got in that cab <laughs> and suddenly realised the the genuine impact of, of what what had happened. And you know, <laughs> while we were worrying about can I find the right or legal authority to put in front of yeah, Lady yeah, yeah. Hale, someone else had completely reconceptualised this thing away from right. You've got a guy who has not uh, got a, got the, the consent of the country and has just sent home the democratically elected representatives yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the people, which no one has done since Charles I. Um, and suddenly, that guy is the goody. That guy is fighting for democracy. And us, including me, who was had been in practice for a year then and sort of was just in, in this whirlwind of what the hell is going on, we were in, involved in this conspiracy against democracy, despite the fact that all we wanted to do was just get Parliament open again. What do you think is behind the attacks on judges, the, the male sort of enemies of the people headlines, a good example, and the constant recent refrain of lefty lawyers supposedly hindering the will of the people on immigration? What I'm interested in is, do you think it's opportunistic or do you think it's coordinated? I'm not suggesting there's sort of, you know, someone blowfeld like stroking a cat, pulling Mm. all of these strings. But I don't think it's just opportunistic. For democracy to function effectively, it has to rest on the empowerment of the citizen. And the courtroom is where the citizen is empowered against their government. Mm. It's where we get to say, number one, you've got to respect my fundamental rights as as an individual. And number two, you've got to respect the laws that Parliament, my representatives, have passed. And that is a constant threat to to the executive. And so I think they're not actually attacks on judges. They're attacks on citizens because they are designed to prevent us as ordinary individuals from holding the government to account Mm. through the courts for their day-to-day decisions. And the fourth estate seems to have placed itself in sort of opposition to courts, it seems to me, quite consistently. There's just this notion that judges are not in touch with the people and are trying to take... um, the will of the people away from them. Is that is that a fair assessment of the coverage? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not sort of saying the legal system is perfect, far from it. Yeah. Um, but the I think the, the fourth estate is one of the largest concentrations of unaccountable power in the country. Mm. You know, the, the majority of media audiences are watching, traditional media audiences, are watching or reading things that are controlled by six guys, mm. most of whom we d- uh, don't live in, in the UK. And so the, there is a clear incentive there to, to be against any yeah. possibility of holding power to account. Y- your book kind of focuses on four broad themes, accountability, we get that. Centralization, we get that. Enfranchisement, we get that. And bullshit. Talk us through <laughs> the fourth broad category. Because <laughs> it can be interpreted in many, many ways. Of course, not just a way to annoy my editor every time I, uh, I wrote it. Um, so this comes from me trying to grapple with the, the concept of democracy. And it's, it's not just a thing about laws and judges and rules and politicians. Democracy has to be a culture. And democratic morality requires that most of us tell the truth most of the time, that we're in some way connected to reality. And 
bullshit is a subversion of that. And it comes from a theory by a, a chap at Princeton called Lawrence Friedman. Um, and a, a bullshit discourse is one where you seek to convince without regard for the truth. And this sort of distinguishes a bullshitter from a liar. So as, as a lawyer, cross-examining someone who's lying to me, I can do that. I reckon I'll probably break a, a liar every yeah. time. I cannot cross-examine a bullshitter because there is just no connection to reality whatsoever. And a bullshit discourse is, has, in my view, infused our, our public policy, our political discourse, in that most of what we're talking about most of the time is actually divorced from reality. And there was a, a fairly... This is... Johnson gets tagged with this a lot, but it's not just him. This has been going on for, for years. And there was yeah. a, um, a, a famous poll from Ipsos in, in, I think, about 2013. And the headline was, British public wrong about nearly everything. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Experts are warning that the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is not only dangerous because it proposes what appears to be a breach of international law, but because it grants extraordinary powers to ministers. And there has been a whole suite of legislation like that in the last few years. Police powers, limiting protests, giving the government power over the Electoral Commission, allowing ministers to take back powers that belong to devolved governments, stuffing the the lords with cronies. I mean, is this just a huge executive overreach? Is Is it effectively populism written into law? Yeah, it's, well, you say populism, I say authoritarianism. Because, sure, but I mean, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm not saying populism in any positive um, sense. Uh, but I think that we, we sort of, uh, when we talk about populism, that there's a risk of missing the point here because, you know, uh, populism is, is the idea is it's the masses against the elites. And actually what we're seeing here, and this is where bullshit comes into it, the, the discourse of populism is being used to massively expand the power of the elites. You know, these are not coal miners that are, that are doing this. They're eaten, educated uh, public school boys. But they're all outsiders and rebels. What are you saying? I wish I was as much of an outsider as, as Boris Johnson, because I would love the three houses and to be that much of an outsider. Uh, what we're seeing is just this massive expansion of, of executive power, both in things that are kind of prima facie scary, like being able to ban protests, but also in things that seem sort of quieter, but are equally damaging, like education. Mm. So, for example, the Office for Students now has massive powers to essentially regulate who can and can't speak on, uh, on university campuses. And it's the, the slow creep of the state into sort of every aspect of our lives to be able to make decisions without us having any say in those uh, mm. whatsoever. And all of it applauded by ostensibly libertarians, which makes it all the more extraordinary. That's um, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Marie, all this behaviour has caused a resurgence of arguments for radical constitutional reform, from the electoral system, an elected upper house, to a written constitution. What do you think? Is that political appetite for such profound reform? I actually think it's largely non-existent at the moment, if I'm being entirely honest, because mm. I think even the Liberal Democrats, who are normally really big on that sort of stuff, I feel I know Sarah Davy is not talking that much about any of it at the moment. I think the Labour Party at the moment is actually desperate to seem as moderate and sort of like responsible as possible and just saying, safe pair of hands, we will not do anything crazy, just elect us, we'll try and steady the ship, 
nothing more. So I don't think it's necessarily in their interest to do that at the moment. But also I think it's more that everything does feel really unstable still. So I'm not sure... I'm not sure there's an appetite to fix things while things are still very actively broken, if that makes sense. So I yeah, think yeah, maybe yeah, in yeah. a few years <clears throat> when things calm down and we go, well, what the hell was that decade? But also, I think everyone's very tired of having these big, big sort of like countrywide fights about massive issues. Yeah. But, you know, Brexit, pandemic, etc., the cultural wars in general, I think everyone's also a bit knackered. Yeah. I, the irony is that unless we sort this massive issue, all the other massive ones will keep happening. Um, Sam, as someone on that call face, as it were, what do you think in the macro level? So put aside the political will that exists right now. Is such profound reform possible? Is it desirable? Yes, to both. And I completely take what Marie says about the um, uh, about the political will. I, th- I think you're absolutely right about that, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's both possible and desirable because we've, we've done it before. And giving citizens more power, uh, empowering citizens is, is always a, de- a desirable thing in a, in a democracy. Mm. And I, th- I, think, I don't think we will ever sort out both the problems in our politics and the tensions in our society until we fundamentally reform our democracy. Because while people are disempowered, you know, while we're able to have a prime ministerial contest that essentially ignores the key concerns of the the vast majority of the the population, because there is just no incentive for our leaders to to deal with Mm -hmm. those, while that's still the case, of course, there's still going to be massive tensions in the country. Of course, we're still going to bounce from crisis to crisis. Hannah, given all that, do you think a progressive coalition, a sort of rainbow coalition of all the broadly progressive parties together, rather than a stonking Labour majority, might actually be a healthier thing? I'm just thinking that there are parties like the Liberal Democrats, even if right now they're not being as vocal about it, the SNP, the Greens, that have niche constitutional agendas, which they may impose on Labour? I I mean, I think it would be a healthier thing, but I don't think it would necessarily be the right thing for now, Mm. given the situation we're in. I think actually a kind of thumping majority for Labour would be the best situation because it would mark a clear... clear demarcation between then and Mm. now. Um, Also, I think the problem with a coalition or even a kind of confidence and supply arrangement among a number of parties is that the politicians who are in those always compromise over the wrong things in pursuit of the wrong aim. So if you think of CLEG and tuition fees, that was such a misstep, such a miscalculation of of, of where their power base had come from and, and protecting that those voters. Uh, and he, if he just stood his ground on that, they as a party, they would have been in a very different position now mm. still, mm. I think. And also, you know, look at the AV referendum. They thought that was really important because it's something they'd stood for for so many years. They, and it was just the wrong thing to force they through. Just, was, I, mean, uh, well, I mean, they went into coalition asking for this thing and then the government, the main partner, didn't support it. But I think that would be the case now in, with almost all of the small parties coming mm, through mm. with Labour trying to create some kind of, you know, coherent agenda. I don't think they could do it in a way that was actually meaningful. Um, I think what we really need now is a sort of, uh, you know, a full platform of policy that hangs together without the delays that would be created by these negotiations because people are exhausted, as Marie said, by 10 years of just conflict and fights and, God, it's, it's actually 
much as I'm obsessed with it, it is actually boring as well. Like, I think everyone wants stability, and, and that comes at the moment in our current system from a significant majority that's, that, that can actually hang together. Sam, several of the leadership hope, hopefuls advocated the UK leaving the European Convention of Human Rights. Truss has indicated she will not be appointing a new ethics chief. Given all of that, do you have any optimism for the future, the immediate future? Give us something. Give us a plank to hold on to as we sink. Well, my optimism comes from I, I tend to sort of be quite down about politics and politicians. But over the past uh, couple of years, I've, I've been working with, uh, with a number of politicians through the APPG on democracy and the constitution. Uh-huh. And that we were able to put together the, the first inquiry into the Clapham Common policing that revealed uh, what happened there. We were able to put together the judicial independence inquiry that, uh, that re- revealed the, the problematic aspects of the, the government's attacks on the judiciary this, this summer. So there are individuals in Parliament who, who are not only you know, genuinely committed to, to democratic ideals and individual rights, but also are really sort of enthusiastic to discuss these ideas and, and right. learn about them and, and develop them. And they come, and this is what really gives me hope, they come from all parties. That's the plank I hang on to. That is, that is my door in the, off the side of the Titanic um, with Kate Winslet on it waving. I'll take it. <laughs> Before we go, let's take a quick look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Hannah, what have you got for us? So this might be a slightly self-serving choice, but I'm going to flag up uh, the story. (laughs) Are you kidding? Like... Half the studio is literally promoting their book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not quite that. It's a, um, it is a protection of my uh, my trade. So uh, the story is that police are asking junior um, coppers to report and log their relationships that they have with reporters. Uh, and, it, and it got some press coverage this week, but not what it deserved. Yeah. Obviously, it's a slightly techie story about how power is kind of held and, 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 where, and, and mm. who's accountable to who. But... Um, I sort of t- I took to Twitter and basically reminded any um, police that have to follow me that the law protects them here. They do not have to do this. Uh, and reporters cannot be found uh, in contempt of court for not revealing their sources apart from in the most extreme circumstances. So there's the no need for them to do this. which was recently reinforced. Yes, absolutely. There's no need for them to do this. They shouldn't be doing this. They should not be being asked to do this. And it just shows you the fear, I think, um, that's within the police about the amount of stories that are still to come out. They're worried now. Mm. Marie? I'm going to go with Germany's train experiment. So Germany made uh, all regional trains, trams and buses transport. Obviously, that had this one ticket that lasted for a month that cost €9, and they did that for three months. Um, They finished that now, and it turns out it saved up, um, was it, 1.8 million tonnes of CO2 emissions, which is the equivalent of powering of 350,000 homes, uh, which is insane, and also apparently helped uh, keep inflation lower than it could have been, uh, which just strikes me as such a great thing of actually making all public transport markedly cheaper, Mm. having that one Mm. monthly ticket for basically the entire country. And makes economic sense, by the way, because of economies of scale. No, exactly. And part of the study as well showed that a fifth of the people who use that ticket are people who usually do not take public transport and drive instead. So actually, hopefully, that's created new habits as well, which I think is brilliant. Wonderful. What about you, Sam? Um, You should have finished with uh, Marie, because that was a cheerful one. Mine is a (laughs) sad one. (laughs) Um, 
so I say this, checking my privilege as a cis white man, but this, this was brought to my attention by, by a friend, and which is that during the Pride, uh, Manchester Pride, the uh, memorial to trans people um, seems to have been vandalised and was certainly urinated on by a large number of people. And I'm not saying this to sort of get into a debate, but what I am uh, saying it is to, to just raise the point that in the bottom of all of these culture war issues are real people and are generally vulnerable real people. And I think it's, it's so, so important to remember that, that innocent people suffer as a result of culture war issues, whether that's the trans debate or um, about immigration or, or anything else. OK, well, let, let, let me finish us off with a mixed note, some positive, some negative. So Google has removed Truth Social from its app store. Um, after multiple violations of its policies on moderation, basically, they're allowing all kinds of stuff advocating violence um, to get through, and Google has finally removed it. All eyes on you, Apple. And that's the show. Thanks to Marie. Thank you. Hannah. Thank you. And our guest, Sam Fowles. Thank you. Don't forget our final live Leicester Square Theatre show of 2022 on Wednesday, 14th of September. There are very few tickets left. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com to book. Don't make me get stern. And stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon. That's after a theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thank you to some of the backlog of loyal and brilliant supporters. And a big thanks from me to Robert Martin, Philip Howells, Marianne Hubel, Nick Troop, Oliver Chadwick, Dr. Paul Taylor-Pitt, Sarah E. Scales and Ewan Spence. Thank you. A grateful shout out from me to Daniel Cooper, Lucy Wimster, Greg Barron, Quiet Spots, Kevin Harabage, Lynn Pickrell, John Gibbs and Fatima. And finally, a big bear hug from me to Sarah Orchard, Chris Minton, Andrew Stewart, Becky McMurder, Anna Beaumont, Jonathan Reed, Paul Murphy, and Carly. See you all next time under a new Prime Minister! Oh God, what now? Was presented by Alex Andre with Marie Lacan and Hannah Fett. The producers were Alex Rees, Jacob Archbold, and Yelena Sofranevich. Assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison. An audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, how are the British people feeling about going from affluent to effluent? The coming energy crisis, a climate crisis worsening by the day, and the third Prime Minister they didn't vote for in six years. Answer, an increasingly large dunno. A sort of Mexican shrug rolling through the country. Polling keeps returning a large proportion of don't-knows. Is there any stopping this slide into political apathy? Um, is this an inevitable result of the current stasis in government, do we think? Johnson didn't want to get anything done in his final weeks in office and Truss isn't promising anything until she gets in, so there's actually no target for people to like or dislike. Uh, how would you, Hannah? I take some strange comfort from the fact that people are willing to 
admit they don't know things. I mean, we've been in a culture for so long where there's this obsession with being right. That was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.